Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Corinthians. It's found in the New Testament. If you need a Bible, there should be one handy in the pew there. It's after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Romans. And before you get to Hebrews, kind of tucked in there. Uh, you'll find First and Second Corinthians. We're in First Corinthians, and and have been uh, working our way through this book over the last couple of of weeks. Uh, really, just beginning into a series on it, uh, studying this letter that uh, the early church leader Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the church at Corinth in that Greek city of Corinth. Uh, we have seen already that they were an example of two interesting dynamics. On the one hand. Tremendous zeal and enthusiasm for the things of the Lord, uh, definitely outwardly. And on the other hand, some considerable confusion about things that you would think they might have already sort of grabbed hold of. Uh, Everything from the nature of the resurrection to the role of men and women in the church to the handling of the Lord's Supper to Marriage and what it means to sexuality issues, to even the haphazard sometimes application of things like the spiritual gifts. Well, they were an interesting group of folks in the way that they were trying to grow in the gospel and stumbling at points along the way. And it's interesting that this also, these dynamics also shaped their understanding of what a church leader, a pastor particularly, And in the case of Paul, an apostle should look like. Ironically, underlying their competition that we've seen in the last couple of weeks between these different leaders that have created some parties in their their church, uh, some following Apollos, some following Paul, some following Cephas. Ironically, their enthusiasm to be in a group behind one of those leaders did not apparently necessarily reflect their willingness to actually listen. And follow what any of those leaders were directing them to do. They wanted to claim the allegiance of a particular person, but not necessarily heed his message. So this morning we're going to do something that honestly is a little bit awkward and uncomfortable for me as a pastor. And that is to look at a passage, chapter 4, that basically talks about what my job description is. What I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. Which may sound like, hey, Chris, why don't you go handle that on your own time? Okay, you know, why drag us into it this Sunday morning? But it's crucial for you all as well to be meditating on. So you know what you should be looking for in the church, in church leadership. In many regards, these things that we'll talk about today uh, refer and are dovetail into the officer nomination and the folks that are lay leaders as well. Uh, Certainly, it involves what we ought to be praying for, for those that lead and shepherd in our church and other churches around us. I think you'll see uh, where we're headed. And it's interesting, then, to look at what the Apostle Paul says about this. He speaks to the Corinthians about what I would call the danger of falling either to either side, either pursuing the superstar pastor or the hired hand pastor. And, of course, the Apostle Paul points them back to Jesus. Now, if you haven't uh, read this passage ever or it's been a long time since you've read it at moments in here, if it feels like the Apostle Paul is speaking tongue in cheek, that's because he is Uh, early in my Christian life. I know this will shock some of you who know me well. I was warned, cautioned about the dangers of sarcasm, right? 
that you can't, you know, use that all the time. And that was a good warning. But it's interesting here. We do find the Apostle Paul occasionally putting uh, putting that way of speaking to to good use. So I invite you all to read along with me as we uh, see the contrast between uh, faithful servant stewards of the mysteries of God. And on the one hand, the hired hand leader or the superstar leader. First uh, Corinthians chapter four, starting in verse one. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? What then you received, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you have become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share in the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered. We entreat. We become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you by my beloved as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, and the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? And the spirit of gentleness. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would teach us good things from your word today. Father, convicting verses for me to read as I apply them to myself. Lord, let these be helpful verses for our church. As we consider these matters of leadership, of following, of shepherding and Lord, as our church might be guided as to 
uh, what to pursue and how to pray and where to encourage me and other leaders. Father, help us in this regard, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul starts off these verses talking about the mysteries of God, about the church leaders, those who are teaching, those who are shepherding, being stewards of the mysteries of God. I remember growing up in my younger years, I'll reveal my inner geek. Uh, I love to read the little Encyclopedia Brown books. I won't ask for a show of hand who, who else was in the Encyclopedia Brown book reading But uh, I love those. My sisters would read a lot of those Nancy Drew stories, which I think was kind of the female version of the same thing. It was, you know, figuring out some mystery, piecing together the puzzle. In recent uh, weeks, the boys and I got that uh, Monk TV series from the the library, the DVDs, and we've been watching through that a little bit with the the boys. And it's, you know, figure out the clues, define the dynamics, figure out, get to the bottom of the mystery. Of what's going on. It's important as we read these verses and as a central theme for uh, what the calling of the the pastor is and other leaders being stewards of the mysteries of God that we understand off the bat that when the Apostle Paul is talking about the mysteries, he's he's not talking about something that we've got to sort of in our own power and understanding or gathering evidence deduce. He's talking about something that's mysterious because we wouldn't know it. In and of ourselves, it's got to be revealed to us. It's got to be displayed to us. He's referring to, of course, the fullness of his redemptive plan and working from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But the pinnacle of that to the work of Jesus Christ that's been revealed, that's been unleashed, you might say, in the world. And it's a mysterious thing because we wouldn't come up with it. We wouldn't have imagined this idea. It's a beautiful plan from the Lord. So the mysteries of God and the Apostle Paul is going to remind us throughout First Corinthians how the power and the transforming work of that mysterious power of the gospel ought to change everything in our lives. Here in this passage, he's specifically helping us to think through uh, church leadership and even the pastoral role. And I, I got to say off the bat, I'm indebted to uh, one of my fellow pastors, uh, Tom Cannon, who I guess seven or eight years ago, I had the opportunity just to visit uh, one time and hear him uh, preach at his church. And and he shared a message about this passage. And it made me think uh, about it. Of course, we're just working our way through First Corinthians. So here we are. We we have that opportunity to deal with what's here. But I thought, wow, that's a important message, actually, for the church to consider. And, and I don't know that he labeled it this way, but he pointed out the contrast between the superstar pastor or leader and the hired hand. Let me explain what I mean by those and then we'll work our way through the verses. On the one hand, I probably scarcely need to point out what I mean by the superstar uh, pastor. We perhaps see some of them on TV or in other settings, but we probably ought to say off the bat that it's it's not inherently wrong for a pastor to have a following. To have some people that want to listen to that person. And some pastors have skills that are other others uh, different from others and uh, therefore have that following that goes along with it. Of course, we should highlight too people from the, the past, Martin Luther and Charles Spurgeon and uh, George Whitfield and Billy Graham. And in a sense, you could say they were superstar pastors or even some of the folks today, Piper and Keller and the others that we follow and listen to. But just because they have a following isn't the issue or the problem. 
The problem, the challenge when I speak of a superstar pastor and when the Apostle Paul uh, challenges it in these verses is referring to a pastor who, who gains a claim, who gains following, not by the force of the Holy Spirit working through that person's ministry and a Christ centered life, but through carefully packaged ministry strategies, uh, skillful presentation of personal appearance and persona that's not always rooted in a bold readiness to say all that God's word has to say. Can't stay popular all the time if you really say everything that's in the Bible. Jesus said it, Luke six twenty six. You know, woe to men, woe to you when all men speak well of you. The superstar pastor has a lot of outward force in his ministry, but frequently lacks depth of character, a sincere heart for shepherding, and seems to have little place in his life for sacrifice or suffering for the gospel. Likewise, when... I speak of the hired hand, and when we see the Apostle Paul challenging that role as well in these verses, I certainly don't want to disparage the important calling of folks uh, like me, perhaps, that have a smaller or medium-sized congregation and don't have much fame or notoriety to go along with it. There's no shame in that. In fact, the church of a, a pastor of a large church might operate as a sort of Hired hand. It's not just the size of the church that dictates it. But instead, when I speak of the hired hand, I'm talking about someone who might care very deeply for the sheep in the congregation and might genuinely desire to serve the Lord, but who perhaps lacks the backbone in Christ to actually lead, to actually speak the things that God says. Indeed, and I'm just Letting us dive on into this. It's an interesting journey to take for me through these verses. The saddest form of the hired hand is when there's an applied agreement almost between the pastor and the congregation, or at least the pastor and the leadership, that we will let you kind of spend time with us and pray for our needs. We'll even let you open the scriptures and preach it, preach the gospel message, as long as you don't rock the boat too much. We'll make sure you've got your role and are taken care of there as long as you don't lead in that way. The superstar pastor misunderstands sacrifice. The hired hand does not lay hold of ministry power in the Holy Spirit. Well, obviously, the Apostle Paul doesn't use these terms. These are my terms for what I see here in the passage. But the contrast between those two options And what he identifies is incredible, isn't it? And you can follow along if you want to in the sermon notes section in the back of your worship guide. It presents this main idea that since Jesus comes with power and sacrifice, we should desire pastors to be trustworthy stewards of the mercies and mysteries of God. That's what we ought to want as a church body. You ought to want. That's what I ought to be seeking as well. Now, the first thing we might say if you're a keen student of the scriptures is, hey, wait a minute. The Apostle Paul was an apostle. So do these things all correlate exactly to pastors and leaders from the church? Well, I'll point out that he refers to Timothy, that Timothy was sent to kind of pastor in this same mode 
to the congregation. And also the scriptures talk about the apostles as folks who revealed and wrote the scriptures, capital A, but also lowercase a, as those who were messengers who were sent to the church to lead and to shepherd it. And I think here Paul is talking about that latter role, the ongoing role of shepherding and leading in the church. Let's talk about this first five verses and see if we can unpack what I'm sharing a little bit more, hopefully help you all to to see it laid out here. Look at verses one through five with me in this passage. It says, uh, this is how one should regard us. So he's saying this is how you ought to think about us. This is what you ought to think. And and so for you all as a congregation, this is how we ought to think about our leadership here. As stewards, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I already kind of defined what a steward is, but boy, I, this made me think about, you know, we, we talk about it, stewardship time, right? Stewardship season in the church, which is kind of a churchy word. And we think about the fact that God's given us the resources that he has and we ought to use those in the way that he's prescribed. We think about stewardship that way. Here, Paul's talking about stewardship that a church, those in church leadership have of the truth of God, of handling that in the right way and presenting and living it out in the right way. And it made me think of an opportunity I had to steward something. I know I've shared this at least a couple of years ago with you all. But uh, but my my father in law, uh, Jerry is his name. Uh, He had a a 20 plus year old tiller, like a garden tiller. And I don't know, I guess it was seven, eight years ago, maybe nine, that I was uh, redoing in our previous house the entire front lawn sod. And I sprayed some of that, you know, weed killer stuff that you just kill off all your grass or whatever, because the grass was just dead. It was horrible. I needed to get rid of it and was going to replace it with sod. Well, you got to get out there and get the soil going. Now, I'm no farmer, but I knew that. So so I borrowed the tiller from my father-in-law. OK, he's my father-in-law. The tiller is still running after 20 years for a reason. Takes very good care of it. He gave me detailed instructions how to make sure the oil was where it needed to be and the gas and all this stuff for the tiller. So uh, much to my chagrin as a steward of the tiller, about a third of the way through the lawn, the thing starts sputtering, smoking, making noises it had not been making before and literally seizes to a halt. My father-in-law's precious 20-year-old tiller. The little tough phone call to call him up and say, hey, thank you for loaning me the tiller. Thank you for entrusting that to me. I've chewed it up. I've destroyed it. It's no longer functional. You know, you rent from one one from the store. You kind of turn it back and say, oh, I'm sorry, and move along <laughs> when you're with your father-in-law. It's, it's personal. Well, that's what stewardship is, right? And we all have to think about that in our own lives and whatever our role and calling and gifting is in the church. The, the pastor, the one who's shepherding and leading, has to think about being a steward of the mysteries of God, of the truth of God. So that should be the central focus. It goes on in verse 2 and says, moreover, it's required of steward that they be a certain type of person, trustworthy, reliable, sound, not haphazard in the way the scriptures are treated. And then he goes on. It gets a little confusing here, perhaps, as, as we were reading it together. Verses three through five, he talks about judging. He says it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And the interesting thing is uh, next week we're going to look at first Corinthians five. And in first Corinthians five, the Apostle Paul is actually going to tell the Corinthians you're not judging enough. He's going to say, hey, you, you've got folks in your church body 
who are living in very obvious and overt and outward ways sinfully and nobody's kind of addressing it. It doesn't line up with profession of faith in the gospel. And we're all broken. We're all fallen. But these are these are ways that aren't even being repented of. We need to deal with it. So he's going to talk about judging that way here. He says for them not to really be judging him. Why? He's a steward of the mysteries of God. He's accountable ultimately to God. Right. That doesn't mean our pastors or church leaders are above judgment. They are as well. The point here is the Apostle Paul saying is the ultimate level of judgment for all of us is God. And he's acknowledging that he's recognizing that he's accountable to him and saying to them, they ought to be thoughtful about it as well. It's interesting. when We think about the trustworthy stewards of God too, not just about what we ought to be aiming for here at our church, but think about some of the people we've got an opportunity to partnership in, in with in ministry in missions. This is a little bit of an aside, but I thought about it as I was preparing this message. You know, so many of the folks that were behind in the mission field are people that are helping to equip trustworthy stewards of the mysteries of God worldwide. Uh, Steve Morgan, who's over in Ireland, you say, well, the church has been there for some time, but the church is almost dead. It's having to be reinvigorated. So they've got to equip and train new pastors and leaders. Daniel Cohey, who I prayed for this morning, his whole you know, role and function in Taiwan is, as I said, to work himself out of a job. He wants to raise up folks there. Uh, Brandon Robbins, uh, they had sick kids, so they had to head out this morning. But uh, Brandon Robbins calling with a third mill in Birmingham Theological Seminary to help provide seminary training for pastors all over the world. That's about these what these verses say to try to help people be trustworthy, reliable stewards of the mysteries of God. So that gives us our target of what we ought to kind of aim for and want and seek and pray for in those who are leading and shepherding us as a church. In contrast, Paul identifies these uh, two two misguided roles, the superstar pastor. And I said the superstar pastor kind of forgets a sacrifice. So there's a danger there for getting sacrificed. Let's take a look at verses six through 13 and you'll see it. You know, he's his sarcasm comes out here in verse six. He says, you already got all you want. You've already become rich. You're already kings. He says, you've kind of already arrived, First Corinthians. You know, I was just there a few years ago, and now I've been gone for a few years, and already you guys have it all figured out and have surpassed the Apostle Paul. So he's, he's speaking very tongue-in-cheek in there. But his concern is that they're elevating sort of human categories over God's categories. Look at verse 9. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. What's he what's he saying there? Spectacle is a real unique word here. It refers to something that you would see in a theater. Right. An actor performing a spectacle or I don't know how we would like a fireworks show or something like a show. We would call it maybe be the way to put it. And he's he's just, you know, when he comes to first the visit with the Corinthians, he's just come from Ephesus. They knew that he had come from Ephesus and you don't need to turn there. But if you look in Acts chapter 19, uh, you'll see that what happened to the Apostle Paul in Ephesus was he challenged the belief system of the day. He challenged the idols, the things that that community was worshiping, these gods, uh, Artemis and so forth. And you know what they did with him when they were going to want to rebuke him and reject him and so forth in their community? They brought him into the theater, it says. 
So the Apostle Paul's referring to the Corinthians as something they should remember, which is that the leader is not a superstar. The only time he's been on stage was for people to rebuke him and kick him out of their community. That's when he was a spectacle. More than that, he's absolutely, when he calls them kings and talks about them reigning, has to have in mind the picture of the Roman kings when they would return from a victorious battle. If you've watched your gladiator movie or whatever thing, you've probably seen a scene like this where they return back into town or return into Rome or wherever. And, and who's at the front of the parade? The rulers, the ones who are victorious, the generals, the conquerors. And who's all the way at the back? Bringing up the rear in shackles. The slaves, the servants, the ones that have been captured through that battle. The Apostle Paul is saying that that's the position, ought to be the position of the church leader, of the church shepherd. There's not often a lot of glamour to it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And it reminds us today again of what you all ought to pray for me. There is not a pastor I don't know and probably other. And this is probably true among lay church leaders as well. That doesn't have pride operating in their mindset. And some part of them want that acclaim and fame and whatever for itself. Instead of for God's glory. So that's something that we ought to be thinking about and praying about. And even, you know, obviously you all are here today at our church. Hopefully that would be a tenor. But if you're some point later in life on to another church or visiting or looking for a place to connect in. Let me urge you to seek somebody who's a, a steward of the mysteries of God and not just outward fluff and appearance. Let me tell you the other reason we don't really like this. We as pastors don't really like this stuff that the Apostle Paul is saying. And the reason he had to say it to the first Corinth, the folks in Corinth through first Corinthians. And the reason it's hard for us to hear. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. These are verses we maybe know a little bit about. Starting in verse 13, Matthew chapter 16 says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of man is? This is part of his teaching technique, right? Uh, We would call it the Socratic method, but it was the Jesus method. More importantly, he'd ask a question to get people thinking, right? Why do uh, who do people say the son of man is his disciples answer? He said, uh, some say John the Baptist, others, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Okay, she's trying to get them to think through the identity in nature of Christ, the center of their faith and their following. Who is he and, and what is it going to mean for them? Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Or what have you figured out? What have you observed? And you remember this passage probably. Simon Peter replied, and a fastball down the down the middle of the plate. He's swinging and he's going to hit this one over the fence. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Not a lot of words, but right on target. Jesus says, blessed are you. Flesh and blood haven't revealed to this. You know, you, you've, you've learned something that's a mystery of God and you've identified it. This has got to come from God. Amazing. I tell you, you're Peter on this rock. I'll build my church. And as much as you believe and profess that the church is going to be built on that, that working of that belief. Sounds pretty good. Awesome day for Peter. Pack it up. Take it. Take it home. Right. 
Nah, Jesus has a little bit more to say. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and scribes and priests and be killed and on the third day be raised. Remember what Peter says when he hears that? Peter took him aside. Imagine the audacity of this. And yet think about how close it is to our heart as well. Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter, said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You are setting your mind on the, not on the things of God, but on the things of men. You know why we don't like the struggle and difficulty and strain of the Christian life and why we part of us wants the superstar pastor that looks like he's got it all together and looks like he's doing wonderfully in all respects and so forth is because we don't want the suffering of the gospel in our lives. And us pastors don't want it either. Uh, in that sense, we're like Peter. We don't want it. Uh, Jesus is challenging us with that and reminding us that, in fact, we should pray for this kind of mindset ourselves. And we should pray for those who lead us to have this kind of mindset as well. Third and last thing that we'll talk about is, um, you know, if the last point was kind of a rebuke to the superstar pastor, this may be for the rebuke to the hired hand pastor. Look at verses 14 through uh, 20. We're back in back in first Corinthians there, 14 through 20. Uh, he says, I, I don't write these things to you to uh, make you ashamed. All right. So he's not just trying he's not just trying to make him feel bad. He says, but to admonish you, you know, positive because you're you're dearly loved children. He cares about them. And he says this, he says, you have countless guides in Christ, but not many fathers. And then goes on to remind them that he was a father to them in the gospel. What does he mean by that? What he means is that uh, he was part of imparting the gospel, right? We saw that uh, he planted the gospel, Apollos watered it, God made it to grow. So the Apostle Paul has a significant role in their life, he's saying. And that ought to be value. That's something they ought to desire. That's not bad to have leadership for them. And he contrasted, he says, you have many guides. The term there is for like a tutor. For somebody, again, a hired hand that you would hire for your children to kind of help them, you know, for math for a semester or help them work with their reading or help them work with their sports or whatever. They are a person who's there Now they may develop an investment in connection with your child. You want that to happen, but they're there because you're paying them to do it. Right. Not because they really care about the thing itself. He goes on. Look uh, down. Uh, with me further in the verses, he says, I urge you then be imitators of me. That sounds a borderline arrogant, right? You know, look at me and do what I'm doing. You know, I make me extremely cautious to say that about my own life, knowing my weaknesses. But the apostle Paul challenges us with that thought. He says later in first Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. It's not about him. It's about the fact that God has put human leadership in place, and it's a good thing. It's a beneficial thing when it's rightly understood, when the human leadership is rightly handling the mysteries of God. There ought to be a good following, a good shepherding. And then in the last couple of verses, I mean, you saw it. He's about to to open up a can on the Corinthian folks. 
You know, he says, uh, you know, let me come and talk to these arrogant people. He's look, he's kind of chomping at the bit to get back there and deal with this face to face. And then he says, the kingdom of God does not come and talk, but in power. All right. Here's the flip side of this. Sometimes uh, my job, the job of others in leadership in the church is is to challenge, is to confront, is to push. And you all ought to pray, even though that makes, you know, might make you uncomfortable in your pew and squirm a little bit sometimes, that as long as that's being done in a way that is grounded in the gospel, in the mysteries of, of, of God, that, that that would happen. That would really happen and that there'd be a response to that, a desire to follow and not just have the things on Sunday morning go in one ear and out the other. The Apostle Paul's picture here is sort of of a combined, uh, we'll end with this, of a, of a ship out to sea. And the ship has to have somebody uh, above the, the deck that's kind of steering and directing and helping the ship to go where it needs to go or it doesn't get there, right? And that's a, a, a role of leadership. It has some power, we might say, to it. And, and then below deck are folks that are rowing as well. They're serving servants of Christ. They're, they're rowing below. And, and the picture the Apostle Paul is saying is that those who lead in the church that we ought to seek and pray for, uh, we should be praying that they would be both of those. They would be people who pick up the oar and are servants of Christ, are ready to row, not, not too above that in their own mind or opinion, and that they'd also be folks that are not afraid to lead, not afraid to know that the Holy Spirit's working through them, that there's true power that comes with that, and that that beckons a response from those who would follow as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures that uh, and, and for our method of kind of going through the scriptures, because I guarantee you, Lord, this is a passage I would never have chosen to preach on my own. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this time to think about these matters myself this week and preparing and ooh, conviction on a lot of these matters on both sides of this uh, this fault line. Father, I pray for the folks in our church who are. Uh, Such loving folks and encouraging folks to me and my family and encouraging, I know, and ready to receive leadership from our elders and others in leadership in our church body. I I thank you for that. I pray that we'd be a church body that just really seeks after, uh, even in the pastoral role, what what you desire. That we, in a real loving and encouraging way, be encouraging one another to, to seek that, to desire that. And Lord, that... Uh, You would allow me and others who are called in leadership to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.